0: While you have your Bibles open there on your laps, just keep them there. We'll read this passage in just a moment. But before we do, I want to remind you that we are in part two of considering the Sabbath according to Jesus. As these two incidents recorded for us at the end of Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3 have to do with the Sabbath and Jesus' actions. An interpretation of it. We've already considered this morning that the Sabbath is not merely something in a far and distant land back in Israel, back some 1,200 or 1,400 years ago. But in fact, we've already seen that the Sabbath was intended for all of mankind ever since the beginning of the world And to extend over the face of the world, as far as mankind would extend his reach over the face of the earth, so too the Sabbath would extend its reach. In fact, most of you here today probably can recall a time when Sabbath laws were still enforced. In fact, the New World Encyclopedia says this about blue laws, as they were often called. Encyclopedia says, A blue law in the U.S. and Canada is a type of law designed to enforce moral standards, particularly the observance of the Sabbath. Most have been repealed or are simply unenforced, although prohibitions of the sale on Sundays of alcoholic beverages, automobiles, and occasionally Almost all commerce are still enforced in some areas. Blue laws often prohibit an activity only during certain hours, and there are usually exceptions to the prohibition of commerce, like stores selling essential items such as food and medicines. And then the article goes on to say, Some blue laws have been retained as a matter of tradition or out of convenience. Tradition or convenience. Well, as you well know, these are never the reasons, or at least adequate reasons, for maintaining a practice in the church of Jesus Christ. Tradition or convenience can never be the grounds upon which we establish or enforce any of our practices. And of course... We could say in our day and age that many more blue laws have been disregarded or not retained, not because of a theological understanding, but simply because they are matters of perceived inconvenience. Let's see what the scripture has to say about the Sabbath. So we can be clear, at least in our hearts and minds, that... We are not seeking to uphold man-made traditions. Or we are not seeking to merely make decisions out of convenience. But only by the authority, the supreme authority of God's word. For the God who has created, the God who has created you and me, is also the God who speaks to us from his word. And so let's read it and pay careful attention to it. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Well, we've seen at the end of chapter 2, in that incident that we've already unpacked last week, that Jesus... Corrected the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath. We consider the fact that Jesus didn't merely disregard the Sabbath or throw it away altogether. But rather, that Jesus taught that works of necessity are lawful on the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus upheld the Sabbath, But he denied that the Pharisees had the correct interpretation of it. They had become so overly restrictive about their rules and regulations, their human traditions. And Jesus would have none of that. So Jesus corrected their understanding. And he taught about the original intent and purpose of the Sabbath. That it's for man's good. Not that the Sabbath is unimportant, but that the Sabbath is important to meet the basic needs of man, even the greatest needs of man. And so that's what we saw in the main there at the end of chapter 2. But there's one part here that we didn't get to cover last time. It's where I want to begin today, and that's with verse 28, where Christ. Establishes his relationship to the Sabbath. and He says, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I want to read something to you from that encyclopedia article I was reading earlier in light of verse 28 here. The article goes on to say, for people who do not regard Sabbath observance as foundational to faith in the divine... Living under blue laws is minimally an inconvenience, and for some, the imposition of state control over their way of life. While the historical reason for such laws is grounded in religious belief and practice, arguments for the preservation of such laws are often based on quality of life issues. Ultimately, and here's the part I want you to focus in on, ultimately... The existence of such laws can only be justified if all members of the society accept the reasoning behind them and accept that such a lifestyle contributes to the betterment of humankind as a whole. The major assumption of the Encyclopedia article when it comes to the Sabbath is that human beings are lords of the Sabbath. That ultimately the Sabbath can only be justified if all members of a society accept it and accept the reasoning behind it. And then only they can deem it as helpful for mankind. But Jesus says something very different in Mark's Gospel. Jesus says that it is ultimately Him, it is His Lordship that determines whether the Sabbath is legitimate or not. It is his lordship alone that determines the validity of the Sabbath and his lordship alone that determines the right use of the Sabbath. So let's Look then at some of the implications of Christ's lordship of the Sabbath. Now Jesus, throughout Mark's gospel, continues to claim to himself divine attributes or aspects of God from the Old Testament scriptures. And that's true here when he says that he is Lord of the Sabbath. If you are to look back to the original commandment as it was given... In the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 verse 10 says, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In other words, the Lord God owns the Sabbath. He has lordship over it. God alone has lordship over it. And so when Jesus is saying that the Son of Man, in reference to himself is Lord of the Sabbath, he's once again identifying himself as God. God in the flesh, God incarnate. Well, as God then, Jesus is saying that he owns the Sabbath day. It belongs to him, it always has belonged to him since creation. Since the day that he rested, when God the Father spoke through the Son... To create all things that currently exist. So Jesus Christ, as the God-man, is saying that he owns the day. He owns the day and he defines the day. I hope at this point you can begin to appreciate the foolishness of the Pharisees and what we see that they're trying to do in these two accounts concerning the Sabbath. They're not merely questioning Jesus about the Sabbath, but they're actually charging him, accusing him that he is breaking the laws of the Sabbath or leading his disciples to break the laws of the Sabbath. It's like one of us mere car drivers. Let's take Mr. Nathan Bain for example, who drives a Ford. It's like Nathan going to the Ford Motor Company, and if Henry Ford were still alive, trying to have a meeting with Henry Ford himself and say, excuse me, Mr. Ford, but I want to tell you a little something about Fords. I've driven an F-150 for the last two years and so I want to tell you all about Fords. we would laugh? That's, that's foolishness. Well, that's precisely what's happening in these accounts between the Pharisees and Jesus. Jesus is the inventor of the Sabbath. And here are some Pharisees who have discussed it amongst themselves. They've even had some oral traditions they've developed. They think they've scrupulously studied the Sabbath well enough to come and tell Jesus what is lawful and what is not lawful on that day. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He created it. He invented it. He designed the very purpose of it. And of course we know that Jesus didn't come to break any of his laws, but to fulfill them. To fulfill every single one of them for lawbreakers. So we see the foolishness of the Pharisees here But we also see positively Christ's relationship to that day. I want to, at this point, before we move forward and consider the second major principle of this passage. We've already considered that works of necessity as we dealt with the hunger that was being satisfied at the end of chapter 2. And as we move into works of mercy... There in chapter 3, where Jesus is about to heal a man on the Sabbath day. Before we get there, there's one thing I think we should address. And that is, why, why do we observe the Sabbath today on a Sunday, or what we call Sunday, the first day of the week? If you are to look at your calendar, your Google calendar, you'd see that Sunday is the first day of the week. It's not the seventh day. It's not Saturday like Jesus would have been observing the Saturday Sabbath here in Mark chapters 2 and 3. So why do we have it on a Sunday now rather than a Saturday? Well, the answer is found here in verse 28, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Lord alone has the sovereign rights to change or develop something within the commandment. And if you want to see the first time that Jesus did this in his pre-incarnate state as the God of the Old Testament, you could see it by simply turning to Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In those two places, we have the Ten Commandments given to us. And if you were to put those two sets of the Ten Commandments side by side, you would see that all the numbers line up. There's the same amount of commandments. In fact, most of the commandments are identical in their rendering. The major glaring difference would be found in the fourth commandment concerning the Sabbath. At the first time that the Lord God gives his people those Ten Commandments written out, he gives them this reason for keeping the Sabbath day holy. Exodus 20 verse 11 reads, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The reason for keeping the Sabbath is clear. The first time God gives the Ten Commandments is because of His creation. <coughs> but when we look to Deuteronomy 5, that second version of the Ten Commandments, and we read verse 15, we see a change in the reason for keeping the Sabbath. <coughs> and of course, Deuteronomy 5 is capturing not an aspect of creation, but redemption. Listen to what Deuteronomy 5.15 says, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day." And so the reason for keeping the Sabbath day in the lifetime of Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, the reason for keeping the day went from creation to salvation, or creation to redemption, because the Lord himself, as Lord of the Sabbath, provided this development. No man could ever change the day for Sabbath-keeping. No man could ever change the reason for keeping the Sabbath. But the Lord can. And the Lord did. Between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Well, when we look at the New Testament Scriptures. And we think about the greater Exodus that is recorded there for us. In fact, Matthew will even call Jesus' work of salvation that he's about to perform on the cross. An exodus. As Jesus will lead his people, not out of Egypt, out of slavery to mere men. But as Jesus is about to go to the cross to lead his people out of bondage to sin and death. The true exodus, the one that the Old Testament exodus only pointed to. When Jesus performs the real and true Exodus, we see that Jesus goes to the cross on a Friday. We see that Jesus dies, he's buried, and he stays entombed the entirety of the seventh day, that Jewish Sabbath. And on the first day of the week, the Sunday, Jesus Christ emerges forth from the tomb victorious in his resurrection. And from that point onward, the New Testament scriptures call the first day of the week the Lord's day. It is the day that we begin to see the New Covenant Church gathering to hear the preaching of the word. Gathering for the breaking of the bread. Gathering. For the worship of God. The book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. The Apostle John gives us these words. Revelation 1 verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying... I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. In those two verses, we see that John, a believer in Jesus Christ, was in the Spirit, And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that first day of the week. And on that day is when Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, visited him. To speak to him. And then to reveal himself to the churches. We see wrapped up in these two verses. The intent and the purpose of the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath. The day upon which Christ was resurrected became the day that he claimed for himself as the Lord's Day. Just as he had claimed the seventh day Sabbath as a day of rest. So now he claims the first day Sabbath as a day of rest for his people to rest in his triumph and his exodus out of sin and death. In the lifetime of Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, there was a dynamic development in terms of the reason for God's people to observe the Sabbath day. In a similar fashion, we see the dynamic development of the Sabbath in the lifetime of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, the mediator of a better covenant. the development from the last day of the week to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, as Scripture calls it. If you're familiar with our Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a wonderful paragraph that summarizes this very teaching, and I want to read it to you. And you can look at it more closely later if you'd like. It's in... Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 7. As it is of the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath, to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Well, since it is our duty and blessing to keep the Christian Sabbath to the end of the world, Let's continue to learn about the Sabbath according to Jesus. We pick up back in our text then in chapter 3. And we see that Jesus is constantly countenancing and observing the holy day of rest. The day that God has set aside for his worship. As we see that once again Jesus is in the synagogue The synagogue, of course, being the meeting place for Jews to meet on the Sabbath day, to hear the word of God read and taught, and for prayers to be offered up. So Jesus, once again, is in the synagogue, as verse 1 tells us. And we see in verse 2 what happens as Jesus comes into the synagogue again. That the Pharisees are there, watching Jesus like a hawk. And they're watching Jesus like a hawk to see whether he will heal this man with the withered hand. Now, it's good for us to remember that the Pharisees are not watching Jesus to confirm his identity as the Messiah. They're not interested anymore in seeing if Jesus will fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of a healer who will come. Even as we sang from Psalm 103 earlier this morning. That he heals from all our diseases, he pardons all of our sins, putting those things together for the Messiah, the one who would come and show forth his care for the soul in the healing acts towards the body. No, the Pharisees were not interested in confirming the identity of Jesus and watching him closely to that end. Nor were they watching him closely like his disciples would have been, trying to learn from him. To know what it is to follow in his footsteps. Rather, the text tells us that they were watching Jesus closely that day in the synagogue because they were wanting to accuse him. Now, the idea behind the accusation, of course, being that if Jesus healed this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath... And they could accuse Jesus of Sabbath breaking. They could accuse him of doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath, or so they thought. We do well to remember at this point the criteria that the Pharisees were using to try to assess whether something was lawful or not on the Sabbath. They were not using the scriptures, they were not using the Bible. And they were not using the Scriptures to interpret Scripture, to come to their conclusions. Rather, they were using the criteria of their own misguided interpretations. Their oral traditions. What could be found today as the Mishnah or the Talmud. And I want to read some of those... Oral traditions that have become written down and codified in the Talmud or Mishnah. And this is what the Talmud says. It says, since leaves have no healing properties, they can be applied to oneself on the Sabbath. Or Here's one from the Mishnah. You can't sip vinegar to cure a toothache on the Sabbath. Here's another one. That eye salve can be applied before the beginning of Sabbath, even if it stays on during the Sabbath. Now, the idea behind all of these traditions of men and interpretations of God's law without undergoing scripture interpreting scripture, the idea behind all of these is that it is wrong to heal. But to start the restorative process on the Sabbath day. The problem is, if you read through your Old Testament, if you read through the Word of God and the law of God that the Pharisees had in their possession, you would find no such idea whatsoever. so the Pharisees are looking for another attempt to accuse Jesus with an infraction of the Sabbath, and they're looking to do so on the basis of their own traditions of men. And the way Mark tells it, Jesus is keenly aware of this reality, whether he reads it on their faces or perceives it in their hearts, or a combination of the two. Either way, Jesus knows the reason why they're watching him so closely. And he addresses the intents of their hearts, not by calling them out directly, but as we see there in verse 3, by calling out the man with the withered hand. Step forward. Can you imagine being that man with the withered hand that day in the synagogue? Perhaps he was overjoyed at the prospect of finally being healed. He wouldn't have been ignorant of all the healings that Jesus had already performed in that very region. Perhaps he was overjoyed to think that this was finally his chance to be restored like others that he had been uh, hearing about. But maybe not. Maybe this man was not a typical synagogue attendee. Maybe he was simply enticed to go on this day at the suggestion of the Pharisees so that they could try to set Jesus up to break their laws of Mishnah or Talmud. We don't know the reason the man was there that day, but we do know that he had a withered hand and Jesus called him forward. We see here then at this point in Mark's narrative a stark contrast between what we've seen so far. Think about all of those who have been brought to Jesus at this point, even on previous Sabbath days, by Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples have been bringing the broken to Jesus to be healed and restored by him. The Pharisees, on the other hand are watching closely to try to accuse Jesus for doing any such thing on the Sabbath. Mark is intentionally showing us there are two very different spirits at work here. One is looking for constant violations to make accusations. The other is constantly looking to carry out the good intent of the day, to promote the life restoring and healing the benefits and blessings of the day to bring people to Jesus, to receive from Jesus what He alone can give. (laughs) The posture of the disciples is a good reminder of what needs to be our posture on the Sabbath day as well. Not looking to primarily accuse people of violations who may or may not be in violation but intent on filling and fulfilling the day with the good intent that the Lord of the Sabbath has intended for it. There's always a place for correction and reproof, but we need to be aware of fostering an accusatory spirit, especially one that overshadows or undermines the good of the day. Back to our text, Jesus, there in verse 4, Now fires back his own question to the Pharisees. They had asked him back in chapter 2, verse 24, about the lawfulness of his disciples' actions and plucking those heads of grain, crushing them in their hands and eating them. But now Jesus fires back his own question about lawfulness to the Pharisees. He turns the tables on them and puts them in the crosshairs of his questioning. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, when we hear a question like that, hopefully we hear a question that has an obvious answer. So obvious that we may even think this to be a rhetorical question, that it it really deserves no answer. Of course, the Sabbath is a day to do good and not evil, to promote life and not death. But Jesus seems to have expected an answer here. In fact, it is their silence and their unwillingness to answer that results in Jesus' anger and grief over their hardness of hearts. Why does their silence betray hard hearts? Well, think about it. The Pharisees dared not answer the question and say, well, of course, it's lawful to do good and not kill on the Sabbath. But if they answered rightly, they would have had no ground upon which to accuse Jesus. And they certainly would have had no justification for what we read at the end of this passage That they went out and colluded with the Herodians to seek to destroy Jesus, to kill him, to murder him in cold blood. Of course, they didn't shout evil or kill either, because no matter how wicked people are, they never seem to be simply able to honestly self identify as evil or promoters of murder. Even if they know it in their hearts, There's always a way to find some relief in self-delusion or putting a positive spin on evil, murderous intent. Evil? No, just pro-choice. Kill? No, it's just women's health. We know this strategy will... Well, Jesus not only fired back his own question about lawfulness, he is now firing back a close look at the Pharisees. As they watched him closely as he went into the synagogue that day, he now looks back at them and sees right through them. And as he does, he is filled with anger and sadness at their hardened evil hearts. We see here in the response of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that not all anger is sinful anger. In fact, here is one of those clear examples of when anger is not sinful, but it is sinless. It's an anger that is directed at sin, which is sinless anger. But it's also an anger, as we need to note well here, that is mixed with sadness or mixed with grief. Of course, as I've said, Mark is full of subtle ways of Jesus Christ being highlighted as the God-man. It's even here in his anger mixed with sadness that we need to see something of his divine character, and attributes. If you think back to the flood, when God looked across the face of the earth and he saw the wickedness of men's hearts, do you remember God's response? Of course, God was angry, and he was about to show forth that anger in the outpouring of his flood judgment. But before he did that, Genesis 6.6 6 reads, And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth. He was grieved in His heart. Whenever the Scriptures speak of God's anger towards sin, it is an anger mixed with sadness. And of course, Jesus is displaying this very same divine disposition here. Once again, everything about Jesus shouts. His identity is God incarnate. Well, Jesus now speaks to the man once again. After having commanded him to step forward, we see Jesus gives another command there in verse 5, stretch out your hand. And we see what happens as this man stretches out his hand, his hand is restored. His hand is made whole again, just as his other one. I think you and I have a hard time appreciating this kind of healing and the impact this kind of healing would have had in the first century. We live in a day and age where we can get by fairly well, maybe with some difficulty and inconvenience with only one Functioning hand. Most of our occupations and livelihoods don't depend upon us having two hands. Or at least two functional hands. We don't live in an agrarian society. We don't live in society where most occupations and most of daily life requires two hands. But Of course, life in first century Capernaum would have been far different. Where most of the occupations are fishermen, carpenters. And of course, everyone was expected to contribute to community building projects. And so this man was getting more than just a hand, but likely even his livelihood back. And it's also interesting to think about the very nature of the fourth commandment at this point, And what Jesus is doing here on a more subtle level. As Jesus is restoring this man's hand, he's also restoring the original intent and purpose of the Sabbath day, and it's one that we oftentimes forget about. If you were to read the full commandment there in the Ten Commandments, part of the the fourth commandment is that six days you shall labor. Six sevenths of the fourth commandment is about doing Work with your hands. In fact, the idea of work is oftentimes depicted by the hands out of any other body part. It is the hands that scriptures is referred to as the agents of doing work. And so Jesus, in this stroke of, you could say, even poetic brilliance, although he could have healed any other condition at this particular moment, as we've seen Jesus heal all kinds of ailments and illnesses, but here he chooses, by his divine orchestration, to call forward a man with a withered hand to teach the fullness of the command of the Sabbath day. That yes, it's a day of rest to be with God's people, but it's also a command. That entails with it six days you shall labor. So this man was being restored to the work of the six days and not only being restored his hand. Well, the incident concludes there in verse six, as we see that the Pharisees go out and immediately plot with another group the Herodians, to destroy Jesus. Now what do we make of this alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians? Well, probably not much if we don't know about the hostilities between these two groups. The Herodians were supporters of the family of Herod. Herod was, you could say, the puppet king over (coughs) Capernaum over Judea, the entire region in which Jesus and his disciples and these Pharisees are living. They were set up as a puppet government or king by Rome and by Caesar. And they were thus favorable to Rome and favorable to Caesar and had less and less of the interests of the Jewish people in their hearts and minds. They were the political family that of course, saw Jesus, even as they saw John the Baptist, as a threat to their political stability. (laughs) Of course, the Pharisees would not have seen the Herodians as favorable. The Pharisees would have seen the Herodians as something of a conflict of interest in their own pursuits, as they wanted to have a Davidic king to once again rule over Judah and Judea. And so their interests were at odds with the Herodians. But it becomes clear after Jesus shows himself at odds with the Pharisees, the Pharisees have a choice. They can be teachable, they can learn from Jesus and correct their human traditions where they can unite with their enemies. They can find a common enemy in Jesus Christ and seek to eliminate him rather than their false doctrines and teachings. And that's clearly what they do. They go and recruit the efforts and the labors of a group that they otherwise would have been at odds with. And they join forces because they are hell-bent on destroying Jesus Christ. Jesus did what was good and restorative on that Sabbath day. The Pharisees left seeking to do the greatest evil that the world has ever known. To be the destructive force against the Lord of Glory and they were willing to unite with their enemies to do so. As we close, I want to suggest to you that there are many fine and choice details of this passage, and it would take us all day to unpack all of them. But we see by the end of this passage that The most severe deformity in these first six verses of Mark chapter 3 is not the withered hand of the man. And the greatest restoration in these first six verses is not merely the restoration of the man's hand. The Pharisees show us the severest deformity. And it's a deformity that exists in every single human heart that has fallen and rebelled against the Lord of glory. But that's the beauty of the Sabbath day. When Jesus called that man with a withered hand to come forward. We can see in that beautiful picture Jesus' invitation for all time for those with withered hearts, for those with withered souls, those that are now under eternal condemnation to come forward. And we see what happened when Jesus called that man to come forward and he responded in faith. And he came forward and he stretched forward his hand in obedience to Jesus' commands that he was made whole. And that's what we need to understand about the Sabbath day. That every time we gather on the Lord's day, the Lord continues to call us to come forward. The Lord continues to call us to respond in faith and obedience to him so that our most severe deformity, so that our withering souls can be restored and made whole once again. That's the intent of the day. That's the good of the day. That's why nothing should keep us from this day Because it is the day of our greatest good for our souls to be made whole by the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. And we thank you that it is a day that you have not done away with, but it is a day in which the Lord Jesus owns by virtue of his being God. And by virtue of his resurrection. And as he emerged from that tomb in wholeness, with a glorified body, Lord, we know that as we step forward in faith, as we come before the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath on his day, he continues. To restore, And he continues to make whole and he will one day make us more whole than we've ever been. And one day he will grant to us even imperishable bodies. Bodies that will never see the withering of old age. Bodies that will never see the withering of disease or injury. And so Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith the promise of restoration as it's found in Jesus Christ. Help us to see today on this day that you've set apart for our greatest good, the good that Jesus Christ works in those who trust him. Help us to trust you. Help us to place our faith in you and lay hold of the restoration that you alone provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.